0: The business of culture, the culture of business, media and technology, markets, policy, politics, full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad.
1: You can speak to your constituents, speak to your political base without going through a third party, not going through media interviews, media scrutiny, but these members who do this don't quite have the capacity to reach people outside their echo chamber that way. I mean, how are you gonna reach people who don't know you well, who could be convinced or persuadable of your argument, but who aren't following you already? Um, I feel like there's a cycle here.
0: The seemingly never-ending process to elect a Speaker of the House, the long tail of January 6th, the debt ceiling, yes, that again, Congressman George Santos' usefulness to both political extremes just some of the topics we discussed with CBS News congressional correspondent, Scott McFarlane. Stay tuned. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence. Recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. Follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. A shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can message me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me from Capitol Hill is Scott McFarlane, congressional correspondent for CBS News. He's been reporting for all broadcasts and platforms. You see him on the evening news. You see him on the Sunday shows. He's brought decades of experience to this beat, covered January 6th, the real wire-to-wire negotiations recently for the Speaker of the House vote, which was like Groundhog Day. Sir, how are you? It's really nice to be here. Thanks for having me. I keep telling you on Twitter, you have the best... Like radio voice. It's so mellifluous. I was like, is there an app you can create that can (laughs) narrate audio books for me and stuff?
1: Let me me be unequivocal. My kids are about done hearing daddy's voice, and they've had had about enough of it. So as mellifluous (laughs) as it may be, they have tired of it quickly.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us. I know you've been slammed this week with all of these conflicting headlines. But take me back to the McCarthy vote, because I think if you were tracking the news for the Speaker of the House, majority vote two, three weeks ago, no one would have imagined it would have gone past three or four tallies, much less 14 or 15. What was going in your mind while that was transpiring?
1: I had the privilege to sit in the chamber for this. We had a CBS News seat in the House Mm. chamber, which I was blessed to have access to throughout. And what struck me most was what I saw on the Democratic side of the chamber, where they looked like the most relaxed people on earth Like the weight of the world was off their shoulders. And I can't remember a time when I was watching Congress where the majority party seemed stressed, strained, and to a degree lost. And the minority party seemed like they were on vacation having a great time. I mean, this is perhaps the only occasion in which that'll be true. But that's what stood out to me over the 96 hours we were in paralysis waiting for a speaker vote to go through.
0: The only comparison I could think of is if I had a crush on someone and really wanted to take them to prom. Clearly, the stakes are far higher here. But this back in high school. Oh, I don't know third, about
1: that. Those, those are pretty high stakes you just painted by, out there. By
0: the third or four asked, I think she'd call the cops on me. But this guy came back 14, 15 times. Like, why? I mean, just to give himself more negotiating room. And, and this was kind of out of Veep at a certain point. It was tragicomic.
1: That's not an unfair comparison. I, I think the difference here is that the, the, the criticism McCarthy received was that previous speakers like Nancy Pelosi would never bring a vote to the floor that wasn't certain to win. Like a, a speaker who's properly leading the U.S. House would never have such unknown mm-hmm. outcomes on the House floor. But that's the thing. In this one singular moment, Kevin McCarthy didn't bring anything to the floor. It brought itself to the floor. It was mandated that at noon on January 3rd there be a vote for Speaker of the House. If he could have delayed it, he probably would have delayed it until he secured everything he needed to secure. But in this one moment, the Constitution, the rules of the House required there to be a vote. So he had to deal with the hand he was dealt, and he dealt with it over four days in a way that at first seemed impossible that there'd be a way this would, that this would bend and yield to him and come to him. But it did. And now he has a honeymoon period from his House Republican conference of undetermined length in which he is, in every way, the Speaker of the House. How much of a leash he's on remains to be seen. But I think that's the storyline that's going to define this first year of this new Congress.
0: You know, uh, Eric Cantor was ejected by this very movement. John Boehner walked away from it, said, I don't need this in my life anymore. I can go work on my tan. Paul Ryan, who then took many negotiations and had many stipulations to do this, then said, I don't really need this. What is it about the McCarthy that you cover? Who Everybody's been saying for years he's just coveted this. This is his precious. He wanted it so badly that he was taken down several pegs publicly at the start of the year to get this. I mean, in the end, what are you getting?
1: Having difficulty telling, it's a bit of a Rorschach test, that question, based on your politics. You know, I think Republicans in the Freedom Caucus would say, we've shown, Speaker McCarthy, that we are going to have our voices heard. We demonstrated that right out of the gates with the Speaker vote, that we are going to be a faction of which you must pay attention. McCarthy's advocates and supporters say, you know, he seems to have navigated this perhaps better than the other names you mentioned, Eric Cantor, John Boehner. Paul Ryan. Maybe they've already had it out. Maybe they had their family meeting and they're ready to move forward in unison. And the Kevin McCarthy seems to have navigated these choppy waters. I still argue this is the story of the 118th Congress. What happens next in the House Republican Conference is everything over the next few months. If the debt ceiling is going to be raised, House Republicans, in some number, will have to vote to do so. It's far from clear how and when that's going to happen. And oh, by the way, if the debt ceiling doesn't get raised, there's potential financial calamity for our entire country. There's going to have to be some bill by October to keep the lights on and the federal government functioning. There'll have to be at least some U.S. House Republican votes to make that happen. This battle we just saw over Speaker of the House was either the battle or the first battle of bigger ones to come.
0: Uh, what is the Republican Party right now? I mean, it's a cross-section of what? Is he a throwback? I'm not as familiar with McCarthy as some in your beat are, but is he kind of a throwback to kind of a George W. Bush Republican, a different kind of a New England uh, you know, fiscal moderate, but don't throw red meat to the MAGA wing side? but that the party has changed and it's contorted clearly since 2012 and 2016. And he has to try to draw a median line through it. Who is he?
1: A really good question. Uh, He seems to be the last man standing of a permutation of Republicans between George W. Bush and Donald Trump, the ones who emerged in 2010 when the U.S. House Republican majority took over in the middle of President Obama's first term, alongside the names you just mentioned, Paul Ryan, Eric Cantor and John Boehner. Those Mm -hmm. three are all gone. Kevin McCarthy is what remains. The 2010 Republican majority that swept into town came in riding the coattails or being part of the Tea Party movement. The Tea Party movement, which was very much rebelling against the first two years of the Obama administration, chastising government, being for smaller government, more restrained government, but not being Trumpian. They weren't Trump-like Republicans. They were their own thing, and Kevin McCarthy was part of the emerging group that led that 2010 Republican majority. The other three are gone after taking in a bruising from the House Freedom Caucus, a more conservative, some would argue, a more radicalized version of the 2010 Tea Party movement. And this is what Kevin McCarthy has learned how to navigate. And that makes him singular in the House Republican conference. He's kind of his own Republican, somebody who is, at least for now, temporarily learned how to maintain a bond with the Freedom Caucus Maintain a bond with the rest of the Republican conference and find a way to 218 votes. Not sure anybody else could have done that.
0: Scott, was the last stand for that kind of way Republican idealism the 2012 postmortem? I know there's a little bit of inside baseball here, but when Mitt Romney couldn't pull it off, a kind of a New England—he was governor of Massachusetts, people seem to forget— Uh, He was a private equity czar and everything, but when that didn't work and the party wanted to reinvent, there were these ideas of, we need to come to a middle ground on immigration. We need to have a much bigger tent with Latinx voters and voters of color. That playbook was effectively thrown into the circular bin in 2016 when Trump pulled off his upset. But have you in your reporting seen, to the extent that the the party's being pulled back by this rump of 20, a kind of a reconsideration of that, that we have to reinvent, especially coming after the the red wave that didn't happen this time around?
1: I think the 2022 midterms were particularly sobering for the Republican Party. I, the, the question you're asking is about the 2012 postmortem that the Republican Party And it's Party ancient did. history.
0: It's ancient history at this point. But could you imagine Mitt Romney getting the presidential nomination? I mean, it's it's been so far removed in 10 years.
1: It seems like fanciful to have a Mitt yeah. Romney win a Republican primary at the moment in political time we were in last year, um, a post-Trump, but still Trump-dominated Republican Party. But a couple things jump out at me. First of all, as I was tracking the speaker vote last week, the Republican votes and the Republican negotiations, didn't really hear Donald Trump's name much from the key Mm -hmm. players when they were speaking to us, when they were speaking in hallways, when they were discussing the meetings and reading out what was happening behind closed doors. He didn't seem to be hyper relevant. And that was noteworthy because Donald Trump not being hyper relevant inside a Republican Party battle is quite something uh, at this moment in time. Also, (laughs) there's this uncertain trajectory ahead. There, There was concern that they didn't take back the Senate. There's deep concern they barely won back the U.S. House, and they did so with a big fat asterisk over the state of New York, where they won a whole bunch of seats in close races because of a map that overwhelmingly favored them after a court intervened in the mapping process for New York politics. So who's going to emerge as the voice of this Republican Party in Congress? Is it going to be Kevin McCarthy? Um, hmm. Because he's Speaker, is it going to be this faction of 20 dissenters and defectors who became hyper prominent during the Speaker fight? Will it be McCarthy's allies as his surrogates out there trying to steer committees in interesting ways? Like Jim Jordan, who now has a chairmanship waiting for him on this House subcommittee on the radicalization or weaponization of the federal government. Or the Senate or the House Judiciary Committee? Will it be some of the more traditional Republicans that lead the Armed Services Committee, the Intelligence Committee? Who is going to be the voice of this Republican conference in Congress, in the House or the Senate? Don't know. That's what we're here for. That's what's interesting.
0: Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Talk about The Voice. We are joined by the mellifluous, golden-throated Scott McFarlane. He is congressional correspondent at CBS News. I've, I've been throwing pebbles at him over Twitter for months saying, you have such an amazing voice. You're going to end up on NPR or something. So finally, he's on our show. Uh, you've been covering Congress for north of 20 years. Uh, what Talk about the split between McCarthy and uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Obviously, McCarthy, after this election, after the 15th vote for his own election, Came out and pointedly thanked former President Donald Trump because he was there was some moral suasion in the background. He probably was calling that rump of 20. You specifically see animus between Trump and McConnell. Trump is still out there calling out Elaine Chao, making you know veiled racist remarks about this. How is this all going to unite around a potential Trump candidacy? A likely, it is. A, it is a Trump candidacy.
1: I mean, you called the fault line pretty accurately there. At this moment, Kevin McCarthy is still a surrogate and champion of Donald Trump, and Mitch McConnell is whatever the opposite of that is (laughs) inside the Republican Party, still somewhat muted in his criticisms of Donald Trump, still somewhat cryptic or passive, but nevertheless, often unsolicited, giving criticism of Donald Trump. The U.S. Senate has the same political complexion it had before the elections, a very narrow majority for Democrats, very few incumbents gone. Very few new people entering into this new Congress, so it's kind of the same thing. The U.S. House and the U.S. Senate are going to have to do business on a few things, whether they want to or not. The Republicans in the House and the Democrats in the Senate are going to have to cobble together some relationship that allows them to raise the debt ceiling and extend government funding to prevent a government shutdown. I'll tell you, I've been talking to a lot of people who'd be players in those negotiations, and not any of us has any earthly idea how that's going to happen, which, by the way, should worry, folks. That we're likely just months away from the debt ceiling crisis that's going to emerge. And nobody seems to have any earthy idea how they're going to avoid economic disaster. That's the issue that should be foremost in the portfolio of legislation and actual policy battles that are ahead.
0: I mean, doesn't it suggest more horse trading, the likes of what you saw between McCarthy? And uh, the MAGA 20. I mean, it's possible we're 12 years removed from Standard and Poor's downgrading the United States creditworthiness, which was unthinkable, largely on Congress playing chicken with the debt ceiling,
1: exclusively on that. That that's what it was. Yeah.
0: But uh, you know, I, I've called it. I I never got the chance in my writing days at Business Week to use the term Kabuki theater. Don't we just bring this Kabuki theater back up every year and play like it's a true negotiating tactic? But everybody knows that the 11th hour, the 10 and a half hour. Somebody is going to get forbearance on this, or we'll just kick the can down the road?
1: One would hope that that there's an exit strategy in the 11th hour. Nobody seems to have a a good, firm idea of what that's going to be. Uh, But there's a bottom line here that's really unavoidable. Last time the debt ceiling came up, the Democrats controlled the House and the Senate, and Democrats received how many Republican votes to get that thing passed? Zero. Zero. got none. How interested— are Democrats in giving Republicans any of their votes when it's the Republicans' turn to deal with this politically toxic issue. Debt ceiling is, it's kryptonite politically. It makes nobody look good. And the majority party has the responsibility of getting it done. Are Democrats really interested in doing what the Republicans wouldn't do last time? And I gotta tell you, if the answer to that is no, I don't know how this thing gets passed because there are some Republicans, likely more than the four or five that they have as a margin for error, that are willing to ever raise the debt ceiling. They may believe that to be politically terminal in their very red congressional districts where the debt and big government are viewed as particularly villainous. So I, but I as, you and your colleagues,
0: as you and your colleagues have covered, this is pretty mundane stuff. It's been lifted across many different administrations, split government throughout the 20th century. It's not necessarily a blank check or an extension on your credit to go out and be profligate. It's being good for what you've already committed to
1: yeah the thing is republicans have been unequivocal in the u.s house that they will negotiate on this they believe they should exact concessions for raising the debt ceiling they believe it's proper right and necessary to exact concessions versus to just do it because it has to get done and that's where things get treacherous because what concessions are they going to seek that anybody would be willing to fold into the debt ceiling they'll likely ask for things they can't get otherwise which means they're controversial but also if they do so, they're setting another precedent that you can negotiate over this. If, if the other side, Democrats in this case, were willing to yield and say, sure, we'll give you X, Y, and Z, just raise the debt ceiling, they view that as dangerous because that means every time the debt ceiling has to be raised that you're supposed to be negotiate other things. And that makes it far from clear or far from certain the debt ceiling gets raised, <laughs> in which case there's a potential calamitous impact on the U.S. economy. There's nothing but downside here.
0: Scott, shouldn't this backdrop theoretically strengthen what's left of centrists, both in the Democratic Party with the Blue Dogs, the Abigail Spanbergian types? I mean, she used to be my congresswoman; she's since been redistricted. Or you think about who is that? Is it the one senator from Montana or Andy Bashir in Kentucky? I mean, the 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 ones that kind of stand out that don't follow the hard red, hard blue alignment. Um, shouldn't this cause maybe a chance for uh, a, a bringing togetherness? Or am I romancing about an old kind of lost Graham Rudman age. This just doesn't happen anymore.
1: When you you have half of Congress controlled by a majority that's so narrow, where any four or five votes, if they defect, have veto power over anything. Any four or five members of the U.S. House are like Joe Manchin of West Virginia, where they can start or stop anything. That in this case of the speaker vote meant these 20 members of the farther right edges of the House Republican conference had power. Or in a different permutation, on a different piece of legislation or a different issue, your centrist Democrats could be pivotal, could have outsized influence and be able to start or stop anything. I think your examples were perfect. What about Abigail Spanberger, who, yeah, whose district has migrated a little bit north, but whose politics in a very purple district tend to hue very purple. There's some issues where she aligns with Republicans. There's many, many issues in which she aligns with leadership in the Democratic Party. Right. She could have outsized influence on certain things. That's the fascinating roller coaster ride we're about to embark on in this Congress. We don't know at which turn who's gonna be pulled in which direction.
0: And here's a question. It's a little footnote question, shadow and persona of a person like an Abigail Spanberger. Wasn't she given cloud cover to vote against Nancy Pelosi as House Speaker last time? Do I recall that correctly? I mean, didn't even Nancy Pelosi handle her detractors better than McCarthy did that said, look, I understand you're from a swing district and you might get points by voting against me or withholding a vote against me or even doing that with the squad? Yeah, I think
1: Nancy Pelosi, who had, by the way, the same margin for error last Congress, a majority of just four or yeah. five seats and basically very little elbow room, always was forthright about that. And for some of her members, you need to distance yourself from me. You need to criticize me. You need to not vote for me for speaker. You need to do that to preserve Democratic control <laughs> of your House district. Um, if Kevin McCarthy wow. hasn't articulated that, he certainly has to have that same mindset where there are a few of you who might need to distance yourself from me so that we maintain a Republican majority. Maybe Nancy Pelosi was more comfortable saying it because she, <laughs> she'd been doing the job for a while and had showed a masterful ability to not lose a vote on the Mm. U.S. House floor, no matter how big or small the margin.
0: Talk to me about Hakeem Jeffries, who uh, it looked like he covered himself in glory with the unanimity of the party behind him. It's not like the centrists said no and the squad said no. People really lined up.
1: Yeah, it's a lot easier to get that unanimity in the minority party. It's much easier. In fact, Kevin McCarthy in his first floor speech as Speaker of the House warned Hakeem Jeffries that, hey, a few years ago, I got a unanimous vote too. Look what can happen once you take over control. Hakeem Jeffries' most impressive maneuver was what he did right after Nancy Pelosi announced she was stepping back from leadership, where he managed to get the support of his conference wrapped up nearly immediately including from veteran members of the U.S. House who may have had allegiances to alternatives to him. Sure. Denny Hoyer of Maryland, longtime Democratic leader who may have pursued the top position, didn't have the votes there for him. They all were ready for Hakeem Jeffries. So whatever Hakeem Jeffries, who by comparison to some of his colleagues is a junior member in terms of longevity, he's only been around about 10 years. Some of these Democrats have been around you know, longer than you and I have been... Uh, full grown adults, he did his work behind the scenes masterfully Mm. after Nancy Pelosi stepped back, which is why he has now commanded uh, unanimous support on the floor from his caucus.
0: You know, something I wanted to ask you about, it seems like the Democrats have a parallel generational speaker of the House in AOC and that she could speak to Twitter and Insta and TikTok. And that's something that we kept hearing in these 14, 15 rounds of votes for a Speaker of the House, that you no longer need C-SPAN or the Sunday morning shows or anything. You can make a beeline, a direct channel to your base, to your brand by using social media. And it, the the worst case scenario is you know, you get a sinecure out of it. You get a Fox News gig. You get a book deal. You can end up speaking at CPAC. That there really isn't downside for someone like a Gates or an MTG who seems to have moderated, or a Lauren Boebert in Colorado. She barely won her election.
1: I think the um, ability of members of Congress to now exist on their own platforms without needing mainstream media, without needing traditional media, um, is noteworthy. Um, You can speak to your constituents, speak to your political base without going through a third party, without going through media interviews, media scrutiny, public airwaves, public or commercial broadcasting. But these members who do this, Lauren Boebert's a great example that you drew, don't quite have the capacity to reach people outside their echo chamber that way. I mean, how are you going to reach people who don't know you well, who could be convinced or persuadable of your argument, but who aren't following you already? Um, I feel like there's a cycle here and those who have their own podcasts who are on their own platforms, who are speaking to the converted, need to be mindful of the fact that You could have a political reality like Lauren Boeber, where, oh, by the way, surprise, you have an incredibly narrow margin of victory while distancing yourself, if not outright criticizing the media in your district and the national mainstream media.
0: But there's still great consolation prizes if you lose. It's not like you go on Wheel of Fortune and you get a, a box of riceroni. You do get a Fox News gig or some of these other direct to digital networks or CPAC or authorship. There's a great speaker circuit. I mean, it seems that going off script is not as high consequence as it used to be. Not nearly. Yeah,
1: I, I, I think that's right. But one thing that jumped out at me over the first, the, the one full week of Speaker of the House drama was how members of the Republican Conference were reacquainting or initially acquainting themselves with cable outlets like MSNBC and CNN and some of the broadcast networks that they (laughs) hadn't spent any time with over the previous two, four, six, or eight years. um, Because at that moment, they wanted to communicate far and wide outside their traditional echo chamber.
0: Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast, to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. A special shout out to our radio listeners on Virginia Public Radio, WVTF Radio IQ, across the great Commonwealth. Holler if you too would like us on your air. If you're just joining us, we are joined by Scott McFarland, congressional correspondent for CBS News. He reports for all broadcasts and platforms. He uh, as his bio says, he brings a wealth of experience to the Capitol Hill beat. You've been in the Beltway and Federal Government Area for nearly 20 years covering uh, these personalities and these megatrends and, and mini trends. And I gotta I gotta ask you, I could never, as a you know, a journalist five years ago, ten years ago, have scripted January 6th. And you were in the belly of the beast then. To say, you know, Donald Trump was a reality character who really rose to prominence with this dark horse bid in 2015. And there was an assault on the Capitol, even the Confederate flag coming into the Senate floor that did not happen in 1865 or 1863 or anything like this. And we saw an echo of that in Brazil last week. And then two years after this, you have McCarthy dealing with kind of the residue. The detritus of this in trying to whip his base into shape and, and make the best of a very thin majority, and you're still covering this. I mean, you have Big O Barnett, the infamous character from Arkansas who stuck his feet up on nancy Pelosi's desk and you know left her a quarter, and his fingers were bloodied, and he took some of her his, her stationery. he's still seeking a sentence, and he's out there fundraising at the same time and making money on it. This was really a a, a mega event, and it continues to haunt the discourse.
1: Here's where we are in the largest prosecution in American history. They have charged about 950 people for their roles in the U.S. Capitol attack of 2021. About half of them, roughly, have either pleaded guilty, gone on trial, and been convicted. Zero of these 950 people have been acquitted by a jury here in Washington, D.C. Zero. That means the Department of Justice has secured convictions against every single January 6th defendant, they brought the trial before a jury, at least partially. But the Department of Justice has been unambiguous about this, saying that there are hundreds more arrests still to come, that they have hundreds more people they're still seeking for being part of the U.S. Capitol attack, which means this is a story and this is an investigation which will cross years and years to come. It's the biggest investigation, biggest prosecution in the history of the country.
0: Why wasn't a person like this low-hanging fruit? He effectively broadcasted it. He put it on social media. We're two years removed from this event, and he's facing what I understand is maybe a year in prison, and he's fundraising simultaneously on it. Uh, You've covered it quite a bit.
1: I, I get that question a lot. These defendants are not making the argument in their filings or before trial juries that they weren't here, or it wasn't them, or it's a mistaken identity. Nobody's arguing that. There's too many cameras, 1,700 of them at the U.S. Capitol. Too many cell phones were rolling, too many Facebook posts and Instagram posts to deny you weren't there on restricted grounds. The defendants are using any of a variety of defenses that we've heard commonly, one being that they didn't know The grounds were restricted at that moment. They thought that there was, you know, it was okay to be there. The police had invited them in. To which the prosecutors and even the judges respond, "What about the roaring alarms, broken glass, smashing pepper spray, and violence that was happening around you? Did that not give you a clue you shouldn't have been there?" Or Uh, you saw,
0: the retired NYPD officer Webster was saying, "I pulled this mask off the Capitol police officer so that he could see my face." I mean, some of this stuff was just blatantly risible. It seems like it was out of an SNL skit.
1: These defenses uh, are not working, Um, certainly not a trial. There are those who argue that they were combating, fighting police in some type of self-defense or through what they characterize as the public authority defense. That means that they believe they were specifically commanded by then-president Trump to do what they did. When he gave that speech at the White House Ellipse, they believed it was an order that they were following. That defense hasn't worked. They got to try a whole series of other defenses. So far, none of them is working. As for the shorter jail terms, prison terms, um, some of these defendants are getting weeks or months in prison for their guilty pleas, but those are the defendants who are pleading guilty to misdemeanors. Uh, Those are the ones who the Justice Department is cutting misdemeanor deals with because those defendants didn't break anything, didn't take anything, didn't plan, didn't come equipped with weapons, didn't assault anyone, and generally left only a matter of minutes after they arrived. Those are the defendants getting very short prison sentences, but the ones on trial as we speak, higher-level defendants, those charged with seditious conspiracy, accused of plotting and planning, of bringing gear, bringing weapons, of bringing guns in some cases— they're not facing prison sentences of weeks and months. They're pr- facing sentences of many years. And the one case you just mentioned, a guy named Thomas Webster, a former New York police officer who was on the mayor's detail back when he was a police That's officer. Think, right. He was convicted at trial and sentenced to the longest prison sentence so far. Ten years, his prison sentence is scheduled to end in the 2030s. So there are major cases out there, too, and more of those are still to come.
0: I'd like to quote a tweet uh, from this morning or yesterday morning, January 11th, Walter Hickey tweets, a guy from the North Shore of Long Island who has a complicated relationship with his social milieu because he faked his entire history but still gets to stick around the party, you say, and is this picture of The Great Gatsby, my favorite book by F. Scott Fitzgerald. But of course, the hint here, the hat tip is to George Santos, who was elected from Long Island, and since it has been revealed with this very razor-thin Republican majority that he embellished a lot of his resume. The Long Island Republican Party has repudiated him in Nassau County. And all you see every day are a bunch of people rushing him at his door in Capitol Hill and trying to say, when will you resign? Will you resign? He did have some photo ops with Marjorie Taylor Greene during the – um speaker vote. But how do you how do you get your head around this? I mean, it's like McCarthy needs him. You already have a, what, a majority of four votes. What happens if he's up for special election again and he loses? It only narrows your vote total even more. So how do I even cover this to begin with?
1: Well, let's start with the context. The context is that, yeah, if he were to resign and there were to be a special election, not only could Republicans lose that seat, seems likely they would. This was a seat that President Biden won pretty overwhelmingly that seemed to slip from a Democrats' hands with George Santos. And a special election would happen in that same district with the same political complexion in the wake of George Santos. So it's not just that they could lose the seat. They very much fear it's likely they lose the seat. So Republicans have that incentive to keep him around. And though some of his Republican colleagues from New York State in the U.S. House say he's got to go, this guy's got to resign, leadership of the House Republican Party, Speaker McCarthy, uh, Elise Stefanik, high-ranking Republican who's also from New York, have not said he needs to resign, saying that it's the voters who should decide, which allows them to wash their hands of this for a couple of years and keep him around. So there's a momentum to keep him around in the Republican conference. George Santos has insisted he's not going anywhere, perhaps still liking the idea of this... <laughs> highly sought after job, the paycheck that comes with it, and the ability to be a national figure. Democrats very much want his seat, but they seem to enjoy having this guy around right now because they have had a seemingly joyful, gleeful time going after him. His New York Democratic colleagues, the New York congressional members from New York, including Dan Goldman and Richie Torres of the New York City area, hand-delivered an ethics complaint to Santos' door this week and invited us all along to watch them do it. Then on uh, Thursday, they authored this legislation called the George Santos Act, which they would say would require more disclosures about your biography if you're going to be a federal candidate and you file with the Federal Election Commission. They're just having a time with him right now. So you put all that together. Republicans might need him around. He seems to want to stay for the job and the paycheck. Democrats, though they want a chance at winning his seat, seem to be having fun with him here. That's an awful lot of people who seem to benefit from George Santos hanging around at least for a short while longer.
0: And I want to quote your Twitter timeline. He said he's George Santos is interviewing now with Republican Representative Matt Gates on Real America's Voice Channel. Gates is the host of the show. Santos says his office is handling constituent needs, including requests for White House visitors, tickets and passport issues. Gates asks Santos, isn't The New York Times going to come for every one of these Republicans before it's over? Santos responds, every last one of them. I just pray for all of you. That when they come for you, that you have the same strength I have. This goes back to your point of kind of inward-facing parochial media. It's no longer the big three networks and C-SPAN and cable TV. You can take it straight to digital, straight to any fringe player. I mean, even Bill O'Reilly has his own thing going on between podcasts and videocasts, and it's just ubiquitous out there. You can consume what you want to consume and custom tailor it to your own particular reality.
1: It also speaks volumes about what he sees as a safe place or a necessary place to make his case. He could do an interview with the local news media in the New York 3rd Congressional District, with the Long Island newspapers, with the New York City radio and television stations, and with the writers, reporters, and podcast hosts who have a unique and local reach on Long Island. Or he could do an interview with Matt Gates. I'm not sure what the audience size is for a Matt Gaetz-hosted or substitute-hosted podcast. But I know the audience includes Matt Gaetz and his political circle, where George Santos may seek safe harbor. Even if he doesn't share the political ideals, he may find an alliance that keeps him alive. Think of the TV show Survivor. Mm-hmm. You need an alliance, sometimes any alliance, to stay on the island a little bit longer.
0: Scott McFarland of CBS News, take us to your reporter's notebook. I mean, in the final stretch of this show. Tell us what we're not covering that we should be covering or that you think is emerging. You mentioned the debt ceiling debate early on. There's been a lot of crying wolf with that. As we get more into 2023, we are going to look at the 2024 presidential election. Donald Trump has seemed to have been dormant so far. Do you see any uh, other than the usual suspects stepping in, Ted Cruz, others in the U.S. Senate who see themselves as potential occupants of the White House?
1: Let me begin by reinforcing what I've been a broken record about um, here at CBS News, which is the debt ceiling is an absolutely enormous story, to which we cannot pay enough attention because I don't right. see how it gets passed. And if it doesn't get passed, um, all hell breaks loose. So let's start with that as a foundation. I just want to reaffirm that this is the biggest thing and there's no way around that. A couple other things. Because that's a must-pass piece of legislation and because the government has to stay open in October, it cannot shut down for an extended period of time it is possible some other things have to be negotiated or changed to get those two realities to happen. I would look closely at the federal workforce. Republicans have been unequivocal in their opening days that they don't believe that tens of thousands of federal workers should be teleworking anymore. And tens of thousands of federal workers are. So from Virginia elsewhere, there may be an awful lot of federal workers who are forced to go back to the office uh, for better or for worse, depending on your views on that. Let's start with that. Um, The size of the federal workforce. The Republican majority has already said it wants to reduce these plans to add more IRS employees. Um, They have villainized the IRS a bit in their campaign against this, recognizing that Americans don't terribly love the IRS. But April 15th is (laughs) coming, sooner than later. And last year, there were enormous and staggering backlogs at the IRS that impacted people's ability to pay their taxes. If the federal government is equivocating about whether to keep a staffing level at the IRS where it needs to be, you can bet that's going to be a problem in the spring. And it's one I'm being mindful of now because we're getting closer to that. But does the federal government itself, where does it go next? I mean, there are challenges keeping the federal workforce up. You know, there's been a very competitive labor market. And now you have Republicans in the U.S. House, depending on your political persuasion, for better or for worse, trying to reduce the size and footprint of the federal government. I'm looking at that as a issue... That's prominent in the next year, but also an issue that very much aligns with and is germane to the government spending and debt ceiling. So I can't help but feel like one of those things may be part of these negotiations and the future of the federal workforce, where they work, for whom they work, whether they can get the staffing levels up, whether they can prevent the backlogs are all going to be part of this.
0: Scott McFarlane, in the Venn diagram of rare agreements among kind of polarized Americans, I can see a pickup truck with a Don't Tread on Me license plate that has a Ukraine flag on the bumper. And I can see many Democrats supporting Ukraine funding and and people on the right and, and, you know, hawks and democracy hawks and everything. But this seems to have become a wedge issue at a time of Ukraine funding fatigue. How do you see that cleaving on Capitol Hill and affecting this still very raw and new war? Yeah, that
1: emerged in 2022 in such a way that the Democrats, on the days before they lost control of the U.S. House, passed a pretty sweeping and large-scale Ukraine aid bill Mm. to pump billions more into the Ukraine war effort, perhaps sensing that the new Congress, Republican-controlled in the U.S. House, might not be willing to do so. They almost acted um, aggressively proactively (laughs) to avoid that being a short-term problem, but it's ultimately going to be something that needs to be revisited either late in 2023 or early in 2024. And though I think Republicans will continue to fund the war in Ukraine because a lot of them would find it not only wrong to defund it, but politically toxic to defund it, They may again try to exact some political concessions along the way. Let's trade this for something. And the something is what gets interesting. What do they want to cut or what do they want to do differently to get that money? And is it something Democrats can go for? Or can Republicans put Democrats in a corner saying, we'll approve this Ukrainian money, but we need a little something else and force Democrats to vote no on Ukraine aid, though while conceivably justified for Democrats, maybe something they can be campaigned against with.
0: Scott, I got to get in your head a little bit, but how often do you wonder, you know, Joe Biden is a creature primarily of Capitol Hill. Yes, he was in the vice president's office for eight years, but since the early 70s, I mean, he was a young guy. He was kind of a greenhorn who rode that. He rode several different Democratic majorities and minorities and the Reagan administration and Bush 41 and Bush 43 and everything else like that. I was struck in seeing him stand there with Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, kind of in this road building effort and with the governor of Kentucky, that is it your impression that these guys have a kind of a back channel of mutual appreciation, that it's not just ad hominem hating each other like, you know, Trump hated Pelosi or even uh, McConnell hates Trump, that these guys speak each other's language, that they ultimately can negotiate things, and that, you know, Biden has seemed to have gotten a lot done with a very thin majority, and maybe he could still get something done with uh, a hostile majority. Yeah, the photo op you're referring
1: to of Senator McConnell and President Biden side by side was a profound thing. It was not an accidental thing, it was not a trivial thing. They wanted to be sitting side by side. They were championing infrastructure investment, which is typically bipartisan in nature. And certainly everybody benefited politically who represents Ohio or Kentucky when they rebuild the bridge that everybody agrees needs to be rebuilt. And when President Biden is looking to get more promotion and more attention to his infrastructure funding bill. All that being said, it was such a startling contrast at the moment in time in which the photo op took place because it was happening mid-House Speaker vote when Republicans were engaged in a political civil war that was ugly and at times un- (laughs) among Americans who didn't want to see such infighting by their elected leaders. That contrast is there. Bringing it back to the point that I'll continue to reference as long as you'll have me is McConnell and Biden were the back channel that stopped the last debt limit crisis in 2011. They were the two who had a meeting of the minds to avert disaster in 2011. Maybe, maybe that pretends they'll do the same thing this
0: time. Full disclosure, stay with us. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. You could subscribe at link We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn. And of course, you can DM me if you'd like to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Are people starting to ask you about the, the long Democratic odds for 2024 and keeping the Senate? There's so many seats to defend.
1: Not just so many seats, but so many seats in which there's presumably an uphill climb. Ohio, Democrat seat, West Virginia, Democrat seat, Pennsylvania, Montana, Democrat seats. And they have to defend those in addition to those that may be challenging in a difficult political climate. Presumably there might be one of those. There might be one of those in 2024. But holding on to West Virginia, holding on to Ohio at this moment in political history going to be a tough, tough lift. And that's their mission now, in addition to protecting other seats that may be somewhat competitive.
0: I'm old enough to remember when Al Gore was a senator from Tennessee, and Al Gore was hoping that Bill Clinton, the president, could campaign for him in West Virginia so that he could take West Virginia in 2000. And that just seems unthinkable right now. Uh, Joe Manchin is is kind of a a relic, and some people call him a Democrat in name only, but... Uh, you do, again, I, I mentioned this earlier. You do see some exceptions to the rule. What is it, Tester, Bashir? Uh, some people who step forward and win in districts that are otherwise extremely red or extremely blue that provide an exception to the rule.
1: Yeah, I'm old enough to remember Virginia <laughs> being. A state where Republicans could trounce Democrats on any given election, at the state level, at the federal level. So These things have evolved so quickly. I, one thing that just stands out to me is that as I look through this roster of new U.S. House members I have to cover for CBS News, I see an awful lot of new Democratic names in North Carolina, and that's a possible trajectory where North Carolina could be the new Georgia and the new Arizona, where Republicans can't count on a statewide victory in federal elections, whereas Ohio and Florida appear to be gone. Long gone from the Democrats. So these things spin around and they move around on you. And I feel like though Virginia has a Republican governor, it's not a lot of Republican candidates who are presumably bullish on their chances in Virginia in 2024 moving forward.
0: And in periods of Republican presidents, it wasn't uncommon for Virginia to have a Democratic governor. You know, the first African-American governor. So this stuff, you know, is very cyclical. In closing, sir, I have a few minutes left with you. I'm going to take you on a hokey route back to your alma mater. Nice. Uh, Syracuse University, which you love and they love you and they're proud of you. Suppose a handful of students at the Newhouse School—they invite you up there. They take you out to dinosaur barbecue. Like Scott McFarland, share should. your best, share your best wisdom with us. I want to go into journalism, but I see the networks are losing viewership digital has nickels that don't pay the bills the way the $10 bills did for TV news and, and newspapers. How do I build it? Where do I go? What do I do? And take your time on this because this is kind of a through line for many of our episodes. The best practices that may have been there for you 25 years ago really don't apply as much today.
1: It doesn't matter what your platform is. It doesn't matter where you want to work or what platform you want to work on. If you have enterprising content, You have a future you can earn a good living you can have job security you can work where you want to work near your family or not you can live in the sunshine live in the cold live in california hawaii new york or pennsylvania if you have enterprise content which means something i can't find on my phone right now something i can't just google before the 11 o'clock news starts on the local tv station before the morning drive radio show begins before the morning newspaper prints and goes to some number of americans enterprise news content is king. It really works on social media. It really works on traditional linear media because it's something somebody doesn't know. And the students go, yeah, of course, of course, of course. But I press them. Are you sure you know? Because what are you pursuing today? What type of content, news or otherwise, are you pursuing today? Is it something that hasn't been done yet? And if the answer is, "Nah," it's something that's been done already then you're pursuing the wrong type of content and you're not going to have a future if that's your mindset. So when I'm covering Capitol Hill along with about two to three thousand other journalists, (laughs) it's a challenge to find something somebody else isn't pursuing already. Um, So that's the challenge. And it's not as hard as it sounds because there are far more stories on earth than there are journalists. There's far more stories in Richmond, Roanoke, Blacksburg, Topeka, Tacoma and Tulsa then there are journalists you just got to find one somebody hasn't found yet I covered January 6th uh, pretty aggressively for the last couple of years and there are other journalists doing it as well not enough because there are 950 defendants there is a calamitous American moment still being investigated there are political and legal implications to every day that goes by and there aren't enough of us so it's easier to find enterprise content and it's easier to command an audience but you can also
0: say you can also say in defense of these uh if these greenhorns were eighteen to twenty two, there isn't a very guaranteed career path anymore. It's not like, you know, you go work your butt off in local and then you get tapped regional or by a newspaper, you do multimedia somewhere and then the Today Show or the nightly news comes knocking and you you pay your dues there. Right now it's very amorphous and unclear what happens to network news or you're being asked to podcast. You're being asked to tweet. You're being asked to go directly to digital, hoping that, you know, you cover yourself in glory and could get competing offers if need be or anything. But who knows what this is going to look like in five years. Whatever
1: living there is to eke out of this, and I think there's I think there's quite a, a long distance future for, for journalism. It's yours if you want it, if you enterprise. And I don't just mean find scoops and find stories others don't. I'm saying just find your own content, produce your own content that isn't replicated elsewhere. Find a different approach to it, find a different angle to it, a different voice in any meaning of that phrase that somebody else has. As long as you're distinctive in what you're delivering, there's a future for you. I mean, I'm absolutely enamored to go each day to work for CBS News, the, 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 the most legendary broadcast outlet in U.S. history, the one I grew up watching and listening to. I get to work for them. And it ain't because I'm a, a fashion model. And it ain't because you know, everybody's dying <laughs> to fun. see what my hair looks like or my shirt looks like. It's because I, I think at some point somebody recognized I can bring some content others weren't offering at that time. Or I can, I'm can. i pretty good at finding nuggets or scoops or at least a different way of presenting news than others might. And that's what I would tell journalism students. If you can do that, you go anywhere you want to. You can, you can earn a good living. You can live where you want to live. Have a house. Have a wife. Have kids. Coach the little league baseball team after you get off work if you enterprise. That's true for disc jockeys, sports announcers, news reporters, strategic communicators, public relations professionals, advertisers, anybody in the communications field.
0: 2023 is still very young. Do you care to make one or two predictions before we let you go? See, here's what I'm
1: not going to do. I'm not going to say debt ceiling again.
0: No, you don't Tempting have to. Tempting
1: as it might be. Um, I think one prediction that it's bold is I think what you saw the week they had that House Speaker vote. Remember all those great camera angles you had? Where you got to see all the negotiations the guy get put in a headlock the the jawing the arguing that's a rarity they usually don't let those cameras go into the house chamber only because a speaker hadn't been chosen yet or special rules adopted allowing that to happen in the time since those cameras have been removed and we're back to the old c-span wide shot grainy camera angles of congress i bet it goes back there's a bipartisan push to try to make the impossible happen, which is to get Congress to allow cameras to show its warts and all. The empty chairs, the jawboning, the things that they may, may not want America to see. I think it goes the other way. I think that there's a moment that's here over the next few weeks and few months with those who have been lobbying to reopen the Congress to cameras, um, full angle, full view, they might prevail.
0: CBS News Congressional Correspondent Scott McFarlane. I gotta I mean is your is your golden voice protected by Lloyds of London oh, or something? Gosh, Surely you have insurance it, for it. It's so beautiful. Well, thank you so much. God bless you for finally joining us, and needless to say, you are always welcome back on full disclosure. Anytime. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course Apple Podcasts. The link is fulldradio.com. Please subscribe, rate and recommend us. Follow along on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle Radio. And again, a shout out to our radio listeners at our NPR member station, WVTF Radio IQ across the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Holler if you too would like me on your air. And you can catch me on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now every week. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening and back with you next week.